Terence Burns is an author, a photographer, a teacher based in Montreal. Maybe you can expand on that just a little bit for me. Expand on which? I can expand on all. <laughs> as, as an author of... How you define yourself? Oh my goodness, I don't. Okay. Uh, I define myself by whatever's called for at, at the moment or, or the situation. Okay. What's called for right now then, do you think? Interview subject. <laughs> you well, are you the me. interview subject. That's a bit uh, what, of a tautology. <laughs> yes, it is. Well, we're going to talk about a specific book to start with at least, and it's your book. It's entitled Closer to Home, the Author and the Author Portrait. It's published by Vehicle Press. And that specifically is what I'd like to talk about, is the author portrait. So perhaps I'll start by quoting the back of the book, because it's got an interesting uh, opening here. In this unusual marriage of text and image, Terence Burns challenges, teases, and occasionally cooperates with the traditional author portrait, which he says is a collection of ancient gestures that signal status, sincerity, and authority, but is quite uninterested in beauty or even interesting photographs. So could you tell me what those signals of status, sincerity, and authority are? Yes, I'd be happy to. I searched, I mean, the history of the portrait is, as I mentioned earlier, and as you well know well, is to make things iconic. And portraiture uh, in the 18th century, for instance, signaled status often in a very, very, and before in a very particular way, the lord of the manor would be shown with his chattel, his house, his wife, and his animals. Mm -hmm. That was the function of that portrait, was to indicate status. You, Did the author photographs include these things or not? Uh, author photographs and let me wander my way back to that, okay. because author photographs traditionally split into two camps. So I'll get to those two camps at the end of this brief path. Okay. Uh, I found, uh, going through the history of painted portraiture and of uh, even Etruscan art, I found a figure of an Etruscan, as I recall, it was a goddess figure who had her uh, fingers to her chin like this. Now it can't be seen, but it as, is as though the head is being supported by the fingers, or sometimes you see the hand on the side of the face. And in the history of art, that gesture has indicated authority and value of different kinds. Someone who's a serious thinker, perhaps. A serious thinker. So yeah. that if you look, for instance, on the cover of Hillary Clinton's autobiography, what do you see? but the hand to the face, the Etruscan gesture, the goddess. You see that, that gesture again and again and again, and photographers at times have instructed their, their subject to put the hand to the face. Well, I mean, there's a couple of reasons for that. One is it has a history in art. The other is that the face is not necessarily a very interesting shape, right? So yeah. you want to have something. It doesn't vary that much either. It doesn't vary that much. So you, yeah. you you want to have something else in the frame. So so those are the those are the two those are the two facets of that. Now, 
the author portrait, 90% of author portraits, oh, I have to tell you an anecdote. Clark Blaze, for when he was photographed for the cover of a North American education for the back cover or for the inside flap, I can't remember which, was told to wear an overcoat that I think Philip Roth had worn for a cover. So even, even though that image would be invisible to any viewer who wasn't at that shoot, he was still donning this robe of authority, right? Mm -hmm. So it held meaning for the people who were making the image at the time, almost a magical quality. Most author photographs are in fact not like that. Most author photographs are the most pallid form of representation that you can imagine exist. And when I did the photographs for this book, I had a rule of thumb. And the rule of thumb was, let's see, no bricks, no books, no screens. How many author photographs have you seen in which, as though the two planes can merge, you've got author, books behind. It's choice number two, author, bricks behind. So the books be, I mean, that actually shows the two sides of things. The books behind suggests the aesthetic, the intellectual. The bricks behind says, I'm gritty, I know experience. Mm -hmm. And the third, which is the most annoyingly innocuous of all, and it's mostly died out, is to have a screen somewhere in the picture. Now, like a computer to, screen? Uh, like a computer, computer screen. There are those photographs, of course. I imagine someone like Karsh would have taken a photograph like this, where the lighting is dramatic, and uh, someone might have a pencil or a pen in one's hand. But that kind of image now would be archaic. So the idea in Closer to Home was to work against the grain of one kind of formalist tradition which strove for authority and the other kind of formalist tradition which strove ironically to deauthorize the author by putting that person in a workspace. So that <clears throat> if we were to look at the cover photograph of Susan here, Susan Gillis. Susan yeah. Gillis, I had in mind an odalisk. She is the frame, uh, the figure, her head is on the right-hand part of the frame, and she's stretched on a shapely divan across uh, the frame to uh, her right. And th what I thought of, I thought of first, well, let's not do let's not do a box brick screen, let's not do an Etruscan goddess, let's do an odalisk. So stretch her out like that, and if you look at all the shapes in there, there's the curvy lamp beside her, there's the curvy shape of the divan, and ironically, and she was not instructed to do it, nor did I ask her to do it, one notes that her, her hand is to her face in that ancient gesture of poise mm. is what it signals. So photography is as I mentioned before, an intentionally limited form. So if you want to extract meaning beyond the most shallow, you have to try and make its elements work together and with a contrasting element of a certain definitely non-curvy rectangular form of a picture on the wall above her head just to try and keep the damn thing alive. 
I'd like to st structure our conversation so that we look at the kind of practicality of, a, of, a, of what an author might want to get from their photograph to put on their books and send out to festivals and to promote themselves and then get into some of the more, not philosophical, but uh, some of the more you know, interesting facets of, of, of the actual photography itself. So, so let's start with that fairly well-known quote that says that the, the author photograph is one of the most important aspects of becoming an author. That, that sounds ridiculous. Branding. But, but I guess it's pretty important. The first part of your question presupposes a level of control and approval which the author may not enjoy in most publishing circumstances. An example of that, I took some photographs of Anita Raubadami, and uh, she wanted to use it on her book. And she was gesturing wildly about something or other, and I caught her speaking, obviously speaking, and with her right hand up in the air. Yes. She loved the picture, and that's what she wanted to use for her book. Now, Anita and her husband are uh, intellectuals. She's also an artist. He's a professor of international development at McGill. They happen to be from India. Mm -hmm. So Anita sends this picture to her publisher. Her publisher says, no, 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 and sends a photographic crew from Toronto to photograph her surrounded by the, I presume it was Hindu and Indian icons that the publisher wanted to represent her with. Now, and is that the publisher or is that the publisher, art director? The, well, either the publisher or the art director. Right, okay. I assume that they're hand in hand at yeah. some point. And so uh, Anita, in that instance at least, was marketed as an exotic not yeah. as a person making a forceful point and using her body. Yeah, I guess there are ideas that many people have of what an author should look like. I wonder whether or not there is a newer question to be asked, and that is whether or not, if we can at all speak about the form of an author photograph, whether or not that form is changing because of the astonishing proliferation of imagery on social media and other places. Mm -hmm. So that when I, I'm not much of a social media user, but occasionally, usually when I'm looking for someone, I'm, I'm driven to their Facebook page. There's scores and scores and scores of, of pictures of authors being uh, ordinary people, unusual people, maybe the nature of status has changed so that status is now gained by being a dominant member of an identifiable group. In other words, your readers, your followers, those who like you. As so it doesn't past, have to be visual then, you're saying? It's yeah, just but based yeah, on the number I'm, of followers you've got? I'm saying that the visual promotes the new authorial, speculating, that the visual promotes the new authorial identity in a different way, whereas in the past you were elevated and made singular, mm -hmm. now you are made something else. And what's that? That thing that is followed and that thing that is liked. The fact is that people 
still make snap judgments based on appearance. Oh my goodness. <laughs> yes, of course. So you're saying that you don't necessarily want to make the author look super smart and super authoritative. It's rather, what, likable? I don't know if it is likable so much as it is identifiable. Is Kim Kardashian likable? Or the new word that they say, relatable. We don't have to just rely on image, whereas before they did. Now, right. of course, there's all sorts of video and film. And right. And as a matter of fact, there's an argument in the author portrait book. Its concluding argument is that this thing called convergence in which the moving and the still images, uh, the technology is drawing them closer and closer together. So that now, if you buy a low-end or an extremely high-end, let's say, 35-millimeter camera, you can also take 4K video with that. So this whole notion of these ways of representation being distinct uh, is starting to disappear. And of course, the expectations of the value, value or lack of value embedded in those forms of representation is going to change too. Yeah, but you make the point that you know that the photographer used to have to have quick hands, quick hands and quick eyes, so that you could catch things. Whereas now, as you say, if you're if you're snapping them off at such a high rate, then you've got all sorts of fascinating options to choose from, and That's right. maybe the role of the professional photographer is, is diminishing as a result. I think that it is. I mean, Cartier-Bresson talked about the decisive moment. So he's got his Leica M2, and he's watching, and it is a shot. It's those, those photons that are captured in that 60th or 120th of a second, and that's the decisive moment. Now, if you're shooting at a burst rate of, say, 12 frames per second, you've got a lot of choices. Yeah, yeah. And if, uh, if, if I'm comparing images on a screen and trying to decide which of these is superior, the difference between very fine and dull often comes down to a few nuances. Often a face in the midst of changing expression or a distraction or a glance or something that actually happens often too quickly to shoot. But again, if you're doing 12 frames a second, you're going to get it all. So what do you look for? Like, why would you pick one and not the other? You know what? I, I look at the eyes. And when the eyes seem to be sharing something with me, then uh, that photograph lives and the others do not. Uh, I'm not sure exactly who said this, but uh, someone said that the photographer, professional photographer, is very good at seeing what's invisible. Hope, sadness, or fear. How does the, the photographer see that, whereas the normal person wouldn't? Well, I think that's a romanticizing crock. <laughs> okay. Um, I should dig up who said that. <laughs> um, sometimes, you know, we see in 3D, 
Mm -hmm. And we see, or most of us see, and those of us who have two eyes see in 3D, and we also see an extraordinary contrast range. No film, no light sensing device is capable of seeing in the contrast range that we do. So that as I look at you now, the left-hand side of your face is in slight shadow. You have highlights on your forehead and your, your uh, eyeglass lenses are putting little uh, uh, moons of light under your eyes. We normalize that. The brain processes that, feeds it into a whole Mr. Beale. The whole impression then. The of that whole person. impression, that's right. A feeling? Uh, a feeling, but a sense of presence. In other words, you know, when people are, when people are taught to draw, for instance, right? Mm. They're not taught to outline the shapes of everything. They're taught to see the things that are there. So that I might draw your face by smudging in the shadows. And if I smudged in the shadows everywhere and left the highlights, suddenly you would appear on the paper. And whether or not you're using digital or analog photographic materials, the inability of those physical materials to synthesize the, the, the visual reality means that you're left with exaggeration of shadow, exaggeration of highlight, um, something that, that isn't as, something that's, that's reduced to uh, the physics of the light more than the person. Hmm. You're talking about the, the the physical photograph itself. The physical photograph doesn't it doesn't capture what doesn't it capture then? What it doesn't capture. So so the way I approach it um, is so I look at the screen or I used to look at the page, and I would look at these exaggerations and distortions that the physical medium produced, and then maybe making as many as a hundred small alterations of light shadow balance you can do it in digital you can't do as much in analog mm -hmm. but you can certainly do it would try to restore that sense of presence and wholeness <laughs> now that to me goes much further toward awful word capturing fairly representing or fairly misrepresenting the subject than does the sudden identification of fear. Mm -hmm. Or if you'll permit a, um, an anecdote. When I photographed uh, Romeo Dallaire, there's light snow and I had all of 19 minutes to photograph him. So we went out in front of the parliament buildings because I saw that on the, whatever it is, bricks of concrete leading up to it, that there were a million footprints in the in the in the half inch of snow mm. so the sense that there was something in the background there was important and I posed him in front of that and he's he's a military man and he was at the time a senator and his bearing was uh, a little stiff and I I said to him look you know you're you're being very senatorial can't you loosen up and I don't know, do something else and we got along well. And, and he said, Terry, what in the hell do you want me to do? He put his arms out to the side and he looked irritated and he looked up. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, 
that when that was published as a cover photograph and the editor underneath it wrote the copy as though Romeo had stated it, Wither Canada. And actually he was saying, what the hell do you want me to do? <laughs> now, what did, did I capture um, dismay, frustration, hope? Uh, no, I captured a gesture. But there is something else. If, if I have, I think this is true, if I have a gift in life, it is that I don't intimidate people. I don't even think, unless I'm very angry, I'm not capable of intimidating people. And I also know that people reveal themselves easily when they're talking. My well, they don't, they won't automatically do that. You have to make them feel comfortable and also you know, that you're not going to jump on everything they say and right. uh, contradict it or belittle it or whatever. So the trick of engaging a photographic subject is to really be interested in that photographic subject mm -hmm. and to be curious about them and to ask questions that are coherent with the things they've just said. I suppose another title for that book might have been Common Ground. Now, it, it doesn't always happen that that ground is found. It has happened to me a couple of times where I have made really unflattering images of people, and it's, it's, it's a challenge, you know, because I, I didn't even used to bring lights. I would rely on, on whatever setting I found and whatever light there was, and I would arrive at the shoot an hour early, and I would walk the streets and the lanes and look in the alleys, to see where the where there was the most light and the most interest, and I would ask if we could shoot there. But sometimes situations bested me. If you've got a subject who wants to be photographed in a room with bright red walls, and the subject is, let's say, diminutive, and is wearing clothes that look they're so thick they're made out of um, upholstery material, and has an inexpressive face. You know, um, there are there are times when I was defeated. There was, when cameras started becoming automatic, Kodak had a wonderful term for images that didn't turn out. And they called it subject failure. It wasn't the instrument's failure, it wasn't the photographer's <laughs> failure, it was the subject's failure. Right. Um, and I won't say that those instances where I screwed up have been subject failure because the the terrifying challenge of it is, okay, you're going in cold. Can you make something good? Okay, so what's good? What's good is discovering things on site like that photograph of Susan Gillis. Or what's good is putting a subject sufficiently at ease and wanting to express her or himself enough that they might actually be adopting postures that the postures themselves are very expressive. Mm -hmm. um, I once said, uh, photographing the American historian Kim McQuaid, I told him that, that the photograph that I wanted to make was one in which he would see himself looking a way that he'd never seen himself before but would immediately say, yes, that's me. I've never seen myself looking like that, but I recognize myself in that. Um, <laughs> that's, I mean, it's an idea. You can strive for an idea, but sometimes it comes down to, well, I'm, uh, I'll just dip into another anecdote to give another side to things. I photographed one Montreal photographer who 
ceased to speak to me on the street after the photograph appeared because appeared she had, in, in a, some kind of journal or magazine or and, uh, the the for 20 years I did the uh, all the cover photographs for the Montreal Review of Books okay and um, uh, I lost friendship for life because I showed when I photographed her in her house the baseboard in her living room was chipped in a couple of places and in the photograph you could see the baseboard was chipped and that's it you relationship over you didn't photoshop them out then or I you didn't, didn't even think to I guess I didn't even think to yeah. but I do photoshop people I mean you know there's this whole notion of what what is photoshop it like puts it puts your head on Hillary Clinton's body or vice versa but you yeah. know Photographers have always, always, always used whatever level of manipulation, whether that be uh, uh, watercolors or whether it be bleaching or whether it be the normal kind of burning in and holding back. Mm -hmm. It's just that um, we have more <clears throat> more ability to do that now than we ever have. So, what do you? Th what would you say then? to the author, you've said what you think is good. What should an author look for in their photographs? Not just the fact that they like it, but you know, what's your professional advice on how they should pick the right photograph? Well, very often they don't have the choice for the right photograph. And if you it, mean it's up to the art director. That's right. Right. And if it is a man, and that man has a female partner, it is often the female partner <laughs> who picks <laughs> the photograph. Seriously? <laughs> oh, seriously, most certainly. Most certainly. Okay, I, I find that hard to believe, but... Friend of mine um, by the name of Ed Ward, whose last book was the first in a trilogy about the history of rock and roll, told me about being photographed for the book by his New York publisher, being sent to an Austin, Texas photographer who was known for photographing celebrities. And um, Ed sent me, I mean, I'd taken photographs of him. I was a little bit pissed that he didn't use mine. Yeah. But the publisher wanted the well-known celebrity photograph photographers. So they could put that line. little name on there, yeah. And so the photographer sent Ed the whole shoot. Ed said, I don't know. He sent me the whole shoot, and I looked at a couple of hundred pictures that looked like. I, I'm I'm failing to answer your question, and I'm descending into anecdote again. I know. I've got. But, we've got to. We've got to curtail that a little okay, bit. Okay. Then I'll st I'll stop this. <laughs> then, <laughs> and it looked like I don't know. It looked like the guy had attached an automatic camera to a flying squirrel and had it circle Ed for an hour to make several hundred images, most of which look the same. Okay, no more anything. You really were pissed that you didn't get that gig, right? I wasn't really pissed. I, I wouldn't have made any money from it. Yeah. You know, often, I very seldom, these images have been reprinted all over the world, from magazines in Poland whose names I cannot even read, to newspapers in New Zealand, you know, all over. Uh, literary magazines in the States, New York Times, all kinds of people ask me for them. I think I have made something rather like $50 <laughs> yeah. on resale and reuse of these images. What should the author look for if they do have a choice? <laughs> you're coming back to your question. You're trying to nail me. 
Uh, and I guess I became anecdotal because I don't think that there is. But they must say to themselves, okay, this captures what I, who I am. That's part of it. But the other part, the other part of it is, so how does this make me popular, as okay. you say? How does this attract readers to, when they're looking at the book in the bookstore, to want to get to know me and my book? I have to descend into generalities again, because I really don't think there is an answer to your question. And the generality has to do with photography in general, and portraiture in particular. And that is that we are highly, highly conditioned to consider photographic images as desirable and as representing something desirable if they very clearly echo work that we have seen before. That's the nature of status. You mean work, work of what? Work pho of photographic, photographic images that they've seen before. Of not of themselves, but of, not a, but of, others, of a celebrity of or someone they admire. That's right. Okay. And if it echoes that right. in lighting and posture and whatever, yeah. then they say that's a good photograph. Okay. And I think that, you know, people are really uncomfortable looking at images themselves. And I said a while ago that 90% of 90% of author portraits are really unflattering and dull. And I think that's a kind of a negative ego, that I don't even need to bother with presenting myself in a particular manner because I'm a writer, I'm above it. That's right, I don't want them to base their decision on my picture, I want them to read my work. That's right, and that of course is another form of status seeking. Not that I'm putting down status seeking, I mean, mm -hmm. as animals that's what we do. Okay, so no real advice that you can give other than what? All right, if I were to give advice as a writer, I would be interested in working with a photographer who was maybe going to challenge me a little bit, who was going to make me work a little bit, who was going to engage me a little bit. Like, again, in conversation, in interesting conversation. Or in, in interesting locations or whatever challenge might be available. Okay, right. You can never tell what's going to work. For a time, I tried things like um, I would tell people to bring something to the shoot that is really valuable to me. I'm sorry, to you. To you, and yeah. <laughs> and show it to me, and just tell me about it. So, you know, people would bring, like, a picture of a dead brother, mother's brooch, or whatever. Mm -hmm. Something emotional. Something emotional and something that they were already engaged in the narrative of. And so suddenly what the activity became about was not about them having to represent themselves in any particular way. It was about them having to represent this thing that I asked them to bring. Mm. What, to think about it while you're photographing them? Absolutely, or to talk about it. While you're photographing. Yeah. Right. Because then it gets them out of that. I mean, I'm the worst photographic subject in the world. If you wanted to take a picture of me, I, uh, I will I, be I, taking one of you. I will be the deer in the headlights, okay? So don't shoot me. <laughs> if I'm stuck on the side of the road looking, you know. So I know what that well, I've got to engage you in some interesting conversation. <laughs> I haven't done that yet, I guess. No, no, no. I, but you're not shooting now. You have to, you have to do both at the same time. To right, right. Um, you will, so I know, I know what that feeling is about. How do you get out of your own head? And we are, are, we are such a visual culture that we 
come prepared with a deep sense of responsibility to represent ourselves to the camera. And we may, may not even be aware that that is a responsibility. For years and years, I did a project, I will make this brief, in a very poor town in the US for 30 some years. I worked among very, very poor people in a very dangerous area. And many of these people, I knew a couple who had been married for 12 years who didn't have a photograph of themselves. I gave um, a, little, a little girl, an Appalachian girl, a photograph, I showed her a photograph and asked her in order to ask her mother if I could take, take a picture of the little girl. And so the girl looked at the black and white photograph and she said, Mama, he gonna draw me like that? She didn't even have a notion of the photograph. Mm -hmm. right? And I would photograph some of these people and they would stand there with their arms hanging by their sides, their mouths open. They weren't stupid people. They weren't unsocialized people. They were just so much out of that world of knowing they had to represent themselves that they were the other side of the coin of people like you and me in this world around us now, in which we're full of this terrifying need that we have to represent ourselves. Yeah, what do you mean by represent ourselves? To like the to camera, tell the, tell to the, the viewer, truth about ourselves? To the viewer. To, because, to because once promote you, ourselves? What? It becomes iconic. You stop the flow of images. You can put it on the wall. It's an icon. What is it iconic of? Well, that's the burden. That's responsibility. What does this icon represent? The icon represents Nigel. The icon represents Terry. The icon represents God. Whatever. Okay. And for that reason, it must be meaningful. We must make it meaningful, even if we're not aware that the culture has given us that responsibility. That's why I told the, the story about these very poor Appalachian people who didn't have the same sense of responsibility. The thing is, so many photographs are taken of, of everyone these days. It's, it's, uh, it's not a special event at all. No. That has changed very quickly. This town that I used to, that I did this huge project in, I was last there in 2010 and stopped working there very seriously in the early 2000s. And women started, like I asked to photograph a woman, another woman on the street would say, don't let him do that. He's going to take your face and he's going to put it on a nude body on the internet. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. 10 or 15 years ago, things had already started to change big time. Mm -hmm. And at that time, street photography became much more difficult. I saw a couple of years ago, I saw a kid out front here of my place in Point St. Charles and he had made himself up as, as some kind of warrior with a garbage can lid and a headdress and it was all naive, it was all poor or I should say rather extremely from extremely limited resources, very bizarre, it looked like a Diane Arbus picture. I came downstairs with my camera and I thought, this is obvious, I, just, I have to get it, I have to get it. Within two minutes, a girl had come running down stairwell screaming at me, and she was maybe 14 years old. 
and I was faced with accusations of pederasty, of mm -hmm. uh, all kinds of, you know, nastinesses yeah. uh, that are all a result of the kind of media world that, that we live in nowadays. So, you know, it's odd, you know, you, you, you contrast that. I was in China earlier this year, and, and these uh, adults came up to us, pulled us over, they wanted pictures of us with their kids. It's kind of odd, isn't it? They just haven't been right. inculcated with uh, this. Uh, but you were also, in effect, the kid with the garbage can shield and the weird headdress. I mean, I've had the same thing in Japan. Mm. Right, mm. Uh, particularly you know out of the cities, mm -hmm. um, it's a gesture of uh, of genuine friendliness and interest. Yeah, and uh, look at this curiosity. Odd, curiosity. Yeah. Look at this odd animal. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's get back to the odd animal. The the author. You're very single-minded, Nigel. So I'm going to just throw out a variety of different observations about photography and let's try and keep the, the author portrait in mind whenever we're talking about any of this. You're the shepherd with the stick, so <laughs> beep when hey, needed. Here we go. <laughs> now this is Annie Leibowitz. I was not afraid to fall in love with these people. I met her briefly once in 1970 and Yoko Ono. <laughs> Well, I was at Rolling Stone. Okay, we're, um, talk, we're talking anecdotes here. Oh, 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 that's okay. That's okay as long as it's true. <laughs> um, I, you know, I have no idea what she meant by by fall in love with these okay. people. You don't I, do that. I think. Do you I, do that? I don't think that she was speaking literally. I think that she was acknowledging the fact that in very important ways. Her subjects were giving up their bodies to her and giving her permission to look at them in a way that you would never look at any other stranger and that if I looked at you like that right now, you'd think what in hell is going on in his mind and it would make you very uncomfortable. So you're being given a gift mm -hmm. and uh, it's a gift of... of great intimacy and so I can see why she might say uh, fall in love with and I would say uh, to give it great respect when I say I want to photograph someone it really means I'd like to know them is that a quote yeah ah but there are ways of knowing here from the biblical to the academic. You only, you've only got a very short period of time to, to get some kind of intimacy out of, out of the situation. Right? And in that short period of time, someone's saying, in effect, take me. And that's intimate, it's disarming, it is, maybe it should be off-putting as well. Is it off-putting to you? Oh, I find it delicious. When I was, uh, I'm, I'm old, I, I sometimes explain myself by saying that I have entered my anecdotage. When I was, um, when I was 11 or 12, mm -hmm. I remember having read about uh, Fellini's uh, method of casting. And he would have 
hundreds of faces come by him and he would study each one. And that to me at that age, and for quite a long time after that age, was very much like an erotic fantasy. I mean, it wasn't sexually exciting, but it had that kind of powerful, intimate engagement. So no, I don't, I don't find it off-putting. I am uh, impressed, impressed by it and sometimes a little bit afraid of it mm-hmm. because it carries with it responsibility. Well, I guess you don't want to exploit it. In a sense, you want to you want to take advantage of the fact it's there, and you want to you want to capture it, but you don't want to what abuse it. You don't want to abuse it. You don't want to abuse it through sensationalistic misrepresentation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and I never have, and you don't win friends or influence many people by doing that. Trust is trust is is at the heart of it all. There's, there's another point to make about writing and photography here that I think is the central argument in the book. And I've, I've had editors reject my work, well, not reject the work, but work in which there has been text and image. And I've had them say to me, the text is too long. We just want a sentence saying, you know, so-and-so on the date. And I argue, but that's not the form that I'm using. Um, the piece that I won a National Magazine Award for last Quite year. Quite recently, yeah. yeah. Um, South of Buck Creek was rejected by, uh, by more than one magazine with the editor saying, the captions are too long. They're not captions. They are... Yeah. Two forms that are making different impressions, and in the author and the author portrait, I argue that the text actually uh, communicates more than the image, (laughs) because the text is uh, something seen from several angles of view, uh, and it is modulated in different ways, and it reveals whatever imperfections I might have and one's imperfections reveal what one is seeing as well whereas the image does one thing it so you're not you're not a believer in the the uh, what the picture's worth a thousand words then uh, I I would almost go as far as Hugh Hood uh, with his book titled the picture always lies I wouldn't say it lies but I would say that 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 10 milliseconds of the character's life does not represent the entire life. Mm-hmm. It's highly, highly uh, aestheticized in a way that the text, which is much more fallible, cannot be to the same degree. Yeah, there's so many more decisions that go into writing a text. You've just clicked a, the shutter button or whatever it is. The, the decisions after the shutter button has been clicked um, happen uh, in the darkroom. Mm-hmm. And there may be, as I mentioned before, a hundred subtle editorial decisions. Mm, so maybe so, I'm wrong then. Maybe no, no, no. I, I, think that, I think you're right. Mm. But I think that there's a further distinction there. 
and that is that photography as a form is primarily editorial. Mm. That the written form is not primarily editorial. I don't exactly know what to call it. Well, it's but creative is what it is. It's, it's creative, that's yeah. right. That's right. It yeah. is in its own fallible way closer to the subject. Okay. And closer to the writer. Hmm. I'm glad we got that in. I think that's very important. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just to follow up you on your uh, your remark. All photographs are accurate, none the truth. That's Avedon. One of my heroes. Apparently he was a wonderful, brilliant uh, personality. You know, when after he did that Texas book, you know the one that I'm talking mm-hmm. about, which my friends in Texas tell me caused a great stir, because of course he made choices about ways he was going to represent people. Uh, a great negative stir. He went back. He went back just to see the people he had photographed. Art's being defined as as in sort of imposing control on the uncontrollable. And you end off your, your book, Closer to Home. You talk about the ordinary disarray of the world. So does, does photography impose some kind of control over that disarray? Sure. You put anything in a frame and you've imposed order on it. You exclude or include anything in the frame. When I was young, uh, a friend sent me uh, a portrait by Picasso of uh, a Spanish anarchist whose name that I can't remember. And he's standing with his uh, right arm crooked and the hand on the hip, and the elbow itself is outside the frame. And that was, although it seems in retrospect like a painfully obvious thing to make, uh, when I saw that image, I thought, oh, there is a profound relationship between what is excluded from the frame and what's included in the frame. And in photography, there is a kind of aesthetic position, a kind of purest position, that I call the heroics of the frame. Some people have argued that you don't crop that you frame then that's the image right and I, I guess it's I guess it's it's parallel would be a sort of uh, romanticism um, in which the crudest speech is most close to nature and is the most truest and, and, and authentic speech or as students so often like to cite Kerouac's 47 pages of On the Road um, on with that long sheet without mm. noting that it then took him seven years of rewriting before it hit publication. <laughs> what? <laughs> and both forms impose frames. You know, you could call one point of view and the other you could call the other frame and, and you got it. Well, fiction, as, you know, as much as anything, is, is deciding what details to include and what details not to include, really. Because you have to, you know, have to make those decisions. Okay, here's an interesting aesthetic parallel. Uh, I tell my writing students that in fiction, uh, and this follows closely on what you say, that to notice something in fiction is to uh, give it importance. Mm-hmm. And there is something of the same thing in photography. 
but the ordinary disarray of the world makes it impossible to establish the same level of control over what is noticed and what's not noticed. So that in photography, it, it often comes down to, um, it comes down to small things like, oh damn, what's his name? The black American writer who teaches at Berkeley, yellow back radio dog broke down. He's uh, an iconoclast, published uh, a book with uh, Baraka, Baraka a couple of years ago. Damn, I spent an afternoon with him and photographed him in uh, in the studio against just a white backdrop, and his um, shoelace was undone and was trailing across the floor of the studio. I, I made sure to to put that in, so he's looking up at me sternly, and he said, "You know, you know who invented that that angry black man face? That was me. I invented it, and it first appeared on the cover of People." <laughs> So that was a, a cover photograph with the, the shoelace dangling, and, uh, and he liked it so much that he asked if he could do a painting of it for his new book cover. <laughs> so that's what I mean. That's my typically length, lengthy anecdotal expression of how the thing that you choose to include can make the image but in photography, there's so much crap all around us, it's hard to do that. Yeah, And that's yeah. one of the reasons the studio exists. I have many times removed small distracting details from an image before printing it. What, with uh, Photoshop? Yeah. yeah. Pictures are more about me than those I photograph. All portraits are self-portraits. Croc. It's, it's a crock because, because it is, it's too much of a generalization. Let's, let's say you take that guy who was so popular years back, all of his pictures were of young girls nude in uh, natural settings, and they all looked like they were 14 or 15 years old, right? I forget the guy's name. Those images were more about him than they were about yeah. the nude fifteen-year-old mm -hmm. girls. Okay. Yeah. But if if you go into the world and you try to, all right, you could say that what I try to do with my images is to confect something from the world around me. If I do that, yeah, then that part is about me because that's a choice that I've made. Mm -hmm. It's your yeah. You've got a point of view. You've right. got uh, an opinion. You've got something you want to say. Photographs contain the humanity of the moment. So how do they do that? Did you write that? No, I didn't write that. Thank God. I was afraid I was going to have to kick you out. <laughs> I have no idea what that means. I do not dwell in or on uh, abstractions. They're not useful to me. I think that was Robert Frank. Ah, well, Frank is uh, half in that case. Well, let's go. This will be the last I talk of him then. Uh, here's another quote. When people look at my pictures, I want them to feel the way they do when they want to read a line of a poem twice. If I think of uh, Frank photographs from the Americans, not post-Americans, mm -hmm. uh, then that line works for me. 
because when I want to read the line of a poem twice, well, often it's because I can't figure out the syntax. But if it's something other than that... No, if it's something you want to remember. If it's something I want to remember, or I feel that it has... I said I don't like abstractions, but if, I, but if the line feels like it has touched something that feels like a truth... Mm. Um, or something that I want to keep inside me. Or, yeah, you want yeah. to grasp it. Yeah. You, you want to taste it. You want, you know, what... Or you just admire it so much. Exactly, exactly. Uh, I mean, it's like there's a, there's a bit of... There's possession, there's curiosity, there's maybe worship. There's a yeah. bunch of things yeah. there. Yeah. And uh, Frank's early pictures as a naive Swiss photographer... Um, on the street in the United States, many of them do that. Mm -hmm. So that, you know, the second you read that line, I thought of a photograph that he took. There's a black couple on a hillside, and the man is, I think, on an elbow looking up at him like that. And that, so that photograph contains, actually communicates something that is ever so slightly tinged with violation, but the nature of the confrontation is something that inclines me to want to taste it more than once, like reading the line more than once. Mm -hmm. So I'm okay with that. Well, uh, yeah, I think I think that's what all artists want. Is they, you know, they, they Fair want they Fair want enough. the uh, person who's taking it in to not just to skip over it once, but to to do all the things you've said. I think, or to appreciate it, I guess. Well, appreciation here is almost to feel something deeply without being able to fully articulate it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's why we go back. If we could articulate it, we wouldn't need to go back. Mm -hmm. And great works, you you can never articulate, or you you may articulate and you realize that you haven't captured everything that there is. There is... Um, was a short story in the New Yorker several years ago by Richard Power. It was a wonderful story about a young woman uh, who bought a book uh, for a couple shillings from a used shop uh, in England when she was uh, her, her European year. And it followed her reading of the book and public response to the book throughout her life to her death and it plausibly showed the meanings that the book acquired in relation to her life and in relation to society. Some of them were mutually exclusive. They were all plausible. That's, that's what art does. Art can enable equally valuable and equally contradictory readings. Well, I think that's what makes uh, Avedon's, uh, some of his stuff so great, is that there are some really profound contradictions within, within his work, and within all, all great work. I think that's true, but the other thing, and this comes back to another point when about, uh, about loving your subject, it is really clear that he cared about each of those people he photographed. I don't think Texan should have been so angry at him because whether or not it was a filthy drifter that they picked up by the side of the road or whether it was 
you know, a couple of cowgirls who actually were extremely well off, he was really engaged with those people. And there was a woman who traveled with him, I can't remember her name, and his assistants talk about how, um, talk about how much they cared about some of the people they met and how much they worried about them. So bordering on love, but yeah. yeah. Well, maybe uh, that's the answer to uh, my question about how do you how do you uh, produce a great author portrait? You try and capture some of the the contradictory nature of that person, which comes back to my comment about my photograph of the American historian Kim McQuaid when I said that I I want you to see something. I want you to see a Kim McQuaid that you've never seen before, yeah. but that you recognize as ineluctably him. Right. Yeah, that's not quite contradictory, but it's different. Mm-hmm. Something on the surface. New. On the surface, it's contradictory. But yeah. Yes, you're quite yeah. right. I'll just uh, wind down here with a, and again, you did. <laughs> I'm quoting off the back of of, uh, of Closer to Home, published by Vehicle Press, uh, and you didn't write it, I guess. The back copy. The back copy. I don't know. I may have. You may have. Reading Closer to Home, we glance from Burns's brief and revealing stories about each writer to the accompanying photograph and we arrive at a new way of looking at both writers and photographs. So how do we do that? If we read the argument of the book and we agree with it, that the forms are modulated through different means and that they communicate different truths or falsehoods or whatever in hell it is they communicate, that both have narrative properties and both those narrative properties have different fallibilities. And of course, back to my original point, that these are author photographs that don't strive to communicate um, anti-status bland everydayness or high intellectual status. Many of the stories are, are, are just kind of simple encounters, aren't they? They're, they just sort of paint a little bit of a, a, little bit of a backstory they yes that's true um, but they also the intent I should say I can't speak to the achievement mm -hmm. um, the intent is to present a prose that has some of the clarity of an image but is not an image the text wants to memorialize my fondness for the subjects and that fondness is sometimes you know, just an awareness of their profound vulnerability, sometimes of their grotesque misinterpretations of their life situations that I can see that they can't. It's a pretty dour-looking lot. I don't see a lot of smiles here. Well, good. Uh, I see what I see is a kind of a lot of sort of they're looking at you and they're questioning why are you taking my photograph 
I get I see a lot of that. Look, look at this one here. This is. I I see a lot of that. Um, you know, I I photographed her again for um, Sheila Fishman. Yeah, for the for that's the, a correct pronunciation. Yeah, yeah. I photographed her again for the Walrus last year, uh, last fall, and um, I learned. I may have known at the time, but I learned that a dear friend of hers had very just died. Uh, it may even have been her sister. I, you know, it, my memory is too dim because, you know, when you're working, and and this actually memorializes it because the photograph of the person is included in the frame. So, uh, uh, you know, for me, on a very very selfish level, I can look through the book, and I I can see memories of intimate moments visualized. Yeah, your intimate moments. My, my inti that's why I call it selfish. No, they're all interesting photographs for sure. But as I said, the one I was looking for some sort of theme or line of, and and as I say, they're not happy people. They're often questioning. They looked like questioning, or they're sort of gazing off into the distance. Um, why is that? That was their mode. Hmm. Well, it's, a, it's, it's ten years' worth of work, right? Ten years' worth of connections. You really are uh, connected to the, the, the Montreal English language writing community. And that's a regret, in a sense, because uh, I, I would prefer to have um, it be not just the English language writing mm. community. Yeah. But the problem is, you know, it's it's like like magic. To the two things that magicians are uh, skilled in is misdirecting the audience's attention, combined with the sleight of hand. And I misdirected my subject's attention from their self consciousness by constant talking and telling them stories and engaging them in their anecdotes. stories. <laughs> That's right. My anecdotage again. And uh, I could not do that nearly as well in French. Yeah. That's the reason. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Anything else you want to say about author, your career as a, an author, photographer, portraitist? Yes, it wasn't a career. <laughs> okay, what was it? It was, <laughs> it was a diversion. Um, I was, at the time that I did many, but not all of these photographs, uh, I was chair of the Department of English at Concordia, um, and I was, of course, teaching at a very tumultuous time in the history of higher education uh, in Quebec because there'd been massive uh, cutbacks, financial cutbacks, which prompted Concordia to offer an early retirement program. Many, many, many people left. Um, also, internal stresses within the Department of English had to be very carefully managed. 
and I my longest uninterrupted workday was 32 hours. I went to one meeting that started, I'm not exaggerating, at a quarter to eight in the morning and it ended a quarter to midnight. I didn't have the administrative help that I required and somehow or other, I don't know, I think some magazine asked me to take a picture and I said, sure, I can get out of this goddamn office and go away and do something else for two or three hours. Mm. That's how it started. It got me out of this job. I mean, I had all of these literary connections because yeah, yeah. of the work I do. You know, and then McGill said, wow, this is, you know, something we want to collect for an archive. Uh, and then that gave me more motivation to do it. So, uh, you know, and then, then there was the book with Simon, so. Hmm. So, English Department Concordia, I guess I can't leave our conversation without getting your take on what's happening in the creative writing program or what's happened or... Was this this sort of? You mean the scandal? The scandal, yeah. The the sexual abuse. Is this just local? Is it just a couple of specific people, or was it endemic throughout your time there as well? I cannot speak to this question. Because. Because of reasons I can't even tell you about. Because I know a very great deal about it. I've been there, I'm the senior member of the department, I've been there a very long time, and because there are numerous investigations underway, and because uh, I've seen what information-hungry media can do to bits and pieces, and I've seen innocent lives, and when I say innocent lives, I'm not talking about people who were accused impropriety, of improprieties, but people who were just caught in the vicious social media blowback be very, very badly hurt. So it would be uh, potentially harmful of me. I wish I could, but um, it would be wrong. Let me say this, in terms of what is known publicly, there were two part-time teachers who were accused, only accused, of sexual impropriety. Um, that's, that is what is known. I think that, that in the current social mood, that it would be difficult for that kind of thing, I wouldn't even say to happen again because that would say it happened. Mm -hmm, it would mm -hmm. be difficult for that kind of thing to happen. Yeah. And that's, that's good. I, you know, I heard the uh, English comedian playwright Stephen Fry, a little bit off topic, talking about the various social warrior movements a while ago. And he said that he certainly approved of many of the goals, but he didn't approve of the ways we were getting there. And that's the way I feel about it. And no, Nigel, I will not take any nude pictures of you. <laughs> Damn it, because I was just about to take my clothes off. Good. Okay, well, thank you for letting me uh, attempt to... Uh 
to draw a verbal portrait of you here? I I'm, I know that I have um, frustrated some of your hopes, um, but they were honestly frustrated <laughs> because no, the, no. because there were there were you know I at least have no interesting answers to some of those questions. Mm. And in fact, I don't even think they exist. Yeah, yeah, no, no, the, the, you weren't. Uh, I don't think you were ducking any questions or, you know, uh, evasive or anything. No, it came across that you were, uh, you know, and I, th I think it's uh, the questions that I asked may not have answers, yeah. But I just, I mean, part of what I wanted to do was to provide useful, useful information. We had, I think, a good conversation, but to provide, sure. provide useful information to, to people who are, are hoping to be published and uh, also to learn about how it works, you know, how, how the, the author photography business works. I mean, th that's changing in ways that we can't predict because of the universality of picture taking and selfies and because, I mean, you, uh, you must know that uh, many editors, uh, many publishers now don't even employ editors. Mm -hmm. They say, you want your book edited? You pay an editor mm -hmm. and have it done. Yeah. So uh, I'm sure uh, that there will not be many more teams from Toronto sent to <laughs> Montreal yeah, to yeah. photograph someone you know, to make her look exotic. They just yeah. don't, they just don't have the money for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now the margins are small and the, uh, and the number of uh, publishing firms that are around are just dwindling. Mm -hmm. It's concentrated, isn't it? Yeah. Great, I've been talking to Terence, Terry, um, I used to go by Terry, and when in about 1981 I published my first book, the publisher said, people want books by women, so if we call you Terry in America, they'll think that you're a woman. And I no, I don't want to do that. And then I became Terrence. That's like J.K. Rowling. J.K., yeah, yeah, yeah. you don't know. Yeah. You don't know either way. But my, my early publications in magazines and all kinds of magazines, they're all Terry Burns. Okay. And we've been talking about Closer to Home, The Author and the Author Portrait, published by Véhicule Press in Montreal.